Hello, everyone. Welcome to Alf Bunga Bunga. It's Tuesday, the 23rd of March. My name is Alex Hochuli. I'm with Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare. And George Hoare is with Lee Jones, our guest today. So I'm going to hand over to George now um, to introduce what we're talking about. The uh, two obviously very closely related themes, uh, the coup and uh, uprising in Myanmar and uh, COVID, state failure and comparisons between Britain and Korea. It's obviously uh, a mixed bag, um, but it should be a great bag. All right, George. I don't think mixed bag is the right um, is is the right term. More more like a, a pick and mix or a, a luxury hamper with with the finest <laughs> uh, goods selected. Um, but Welcome what, to the what, Bunga luxury hamper. Yeah, it's 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 on brand for us. Um, but yeah, so to discuss questions of um, global political significance, force in politics, um, and all all the all good stuff like that. Joined uh, today, very happy to be so by uh, Lee Jones, who's a reader in international politics at Queen Mary. Hi, Lee. Hi, George. Good to see you. Ev- everybody who listens to this podcast knows Lee already, but it's good to, to give him good to give him the introduction um, that he deserves. Actually, that sounded a bit sarcastic. It was like short <laughs> also, it wasn't such a glowing welcome either, you, so you he always deserves better. Sar- you always sound sarcastic, George. Anyway, let's let's actually get on with it because um, we have two big topics to uh, discuss. So the first is Myanmar. So Lee, um, just to start with a bit of the background um, before we get into some of the more recent events, could you give us a brief history of the transition to civilian rule in Myanmar in 2010 um, when the first elections were held after 22 years of military rule? Yeah, so I... I mean, I guess you want to insert a cross-reference to an earlier episode because I think the first time I appeared on your podcast was to discuss this. Yes, yes. Episode 16, uh, entitled uh, Aung San Suu Kyi Ain't What She Used To Be, um, which was too long. A long time ago. Which is a long title. That's in the the prehistory of the podcast. So that that, that episode barely exists. The pre-end of the end of history. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Now, ironically, she is what she used to be, uh, which is under arrest. Um, so <laughs> your listeners might remember that the country of Myanmar, formerly known as Burma, was under military rule from 1988 to 2010. And then the military um, superintended a shift to what they called disciplined, flourishing democracy. They created a new constitution. They tried to impose it in the 90s without success. But then the military was bolstered by uh, arms imports from China and by booming uh, commodity exports managed to suppress the opposition, managed to tempt many of the ethnic minority resistance groups into ceasefires and business deals with the regime. Uh, And so it was able to impose a new constitution in 2008 and held elections in 2010, which Aung San Suu Kyi's National League for Democracy boycotted. Um, And so the party that won was the Union Solidarity and Development Party, which grew out of a mass organization promoted by the previous military regime. Um, And then in 2012, that government engineered by-elections that allowed the NLD to come into parliament, and that's when Aung Suu Kyi was elected. And um, the military nonetheless had retained very important powers under the constitution. So they they are not under civilian control. They have complete autonomy. Uh, They have control of the defense home affairs and border affairs ministries, and they have 25% of parliamentary seats, which gives them a lock on constitutional change. And then in 2015, 
the NLD won a landslide election and Aung San Suu Kyi became the de facto head of the government as state councillor. Mm. Uh, and they won another landslide election victory in November 2020. So it seems not only, I mean, Aung San Suu Kyi is, I mean, she's been kind of restored to her role as the underhouse arrest, as the imprisoned leader of the opposition, the democratic opposition. Whereas before, I mean, you know, I mean, almost you know, a year, well, a year ago, maybe even months ago, she was being... Um, disparaged and um, you know accused of being a war criminal for her the coldness and the callousness with which she brushed aside the accusations of what the Burmese state had been doing to the Rohingya population mm. in Burma and now she's an international hero again um, 180 degree reversal in um, the space of a few months due to the changing politics of the Burmese military. I think that's a bit overstated I think that um, a lot of outsiders still can see that Aung San Suu Kyi is a tainted hero, a fallen angel, so to speak. But at the same time, they don't want to see the country revert to military rule. So I think... But nobody we, mentions the Rohingya anymore. I mean, that is very kind of striking. That's not quite true. Um, the What's interesting is some of the protesters inside Myanmar responding to the military coup of 1st of February this year um, have started to say that they're very sorry uh, about the Rohingya, that they were kind of brainwashed by the military. Um, and, you know, there's some talk among activists about uh, addressing the Rohingya issue as part of the wider, as part of the wider problem. They're still pretty marginal, it has to be said. Um, but I think one of the interesting things that has happened among the majority ethnic Bama that are making up most of the street protests against the coup is they have started to recognise that uh, they can't really ignore the way the military has been behaving in the country's borderlands anymore because it's now treating them the same. Um, it is mm. it is slightly sickening, I think, that these people kept so quiet for so long when ethnic mm. minority populations were being brutalised um, and they rallied around Dong San Suu Kyi and, and gave her very uncritical support. And then as soon as she's locked up, then they come out on the streets against the military. Um, but that's where we are. Uh, but externally, I think it's not quite the case that uh, to say that nobody's talking about the Rohingya or that, or that Dong San Suu Kyi is being deified again in the way she was in the 90s and 2000s. It's, I think nobody's quite gone back to that that silly uh, period of morality plays that we no, were in before. I, I take that. I suppose I was, I mean, I suppose there is nonetheless, I think a hypocritical streak in the international liberalism um, that obviously dominates the response. And I think it'll be more difficult after this now to go back to um, accusing her of war crimes. Um, but I mean, we can bring it up to the present, I suppose. Um, so, yeah. So actually just before we, we kind of get up to the, <clears throat> Uh, to the present and to the situation in Myanmar today, just maybe a little bit of background for um, people who maybe haven't heard the earlier episode that we uh, that we did. Who are the typical supporters of the National League for Democracy, the NLD? What what sort of um, part of society does uh, do, does this party represent? The NLD was uh, was created to contest the 1990 elections after the old 
Burmese Socialist Programme Party collapsed in 1988 among, amid widespread urban protests uh, and ongoing ethnic minority insurgency in the borderlands. And okay, the democratic opposition is actually quite fragmented and there are dozens mm-hmm. of political parties, but a lot of them are just little kind of small uh, you know, outfits based around individuals. The NLD is very much a personal vehicle for Aung San Suu Kyi, who is the daughter of the revered pro-independence leader Aung San, who first fought uh, with the Japanese against the British and then uh, was part of the independence movement. Uh, and really today you would have to say the typical NLD supporter is somebody who hates the military and doesn't want okay. the military to rule. It is a very popular party. It won 60% of the votes in both the most recent um, elections. And it does have strong cross-class support, particularly strong among the ethnic Bama, who comprise about two-thirds of the population. But it has retained a surprising amount of support in the ethnic minority regions, Mm. um, rather than people backing ethnic minority parties, because people are so keen not to see the military return to power. Mm. So, yeah, so to bring us um, up to the present, what's the... the, So there was a, a, a... "Quote unquote coup mm. on the first of, of February this year, but what's what's some of the background to that more more proximally than the transition? So the it was a very very uneven uneasy relationship between the civilian government and the military one. You had essentially right. have a diarchy because of the two thousand eight constitution. The military was entrenched within the state and wasn't amenable to civilian control, whereas what the NLD the NLD's main agenda was to try to change the constitution to mm-hmm. ease the military out of power, which right. was never going to happen. Uh, it was always incredibly naive agenda um, because the military has a lock on constitutional amendments uh, and they'd struggled for, for 20 years to impose this, this order, mm-hmm. which they, they believe is essential to uphold military interests and hold the country together. Um, but they, they pursued that and that caused a lot of, tension with the military um, relations between Aung San Suu Kyi and the commander-in-chief, Minong Lain, were very poor, and there have been deteriorating civil-military relations over the, the last uh, couple of years in particular. And then the 2020 elections, they were very, very contentious. And this is tending to be forgotten now, uh, but it was widely thought that the elections would not be free and fair before they actually were held in November. Many opposition parties, including some aligned to the NLD, Hmm. were saying that the COVID restrictions in particular, the COVID restrictions on campaigning, created a massive incumbency advantage and wasn't fair. Hmm. And then in various parts of the country, the polling was also cancelled on security grounds, which, and this was typically in ethnic minority areas where there were active insurgencies, but some of the minorities were not happy about that. And the military was not happy about some of that because they wanted elections in some areas to be held for, to help, um, to help assist in their version of the peace process. Mm. Uh, and then the electoral commission, which is appointed by the government. So it's stuffed full of NLD cronies um, was pretty incompetent. Uh, and the, the electoral rolls were full of errors and there were all kinds of protests, including from from mm. uh, opposition parties. So even before the election, the military was warning that the NLD government was making serious mistakes mm. and questioning whether it would accept the election result. 
after the result, it was uh, it was highly contested. Uh, opposition parties started to complain. The election commission responded in a very ham-fisted way, and the military took the opportunity to start doing its own quote-unquote investigation and eventually uh, overthrew the government on the 1st of February. So, yeah, we, t- we talked already a little bit about the uh, hypocritical, contradictory, uh, international liberal response. But what I guess what, what, what are the, some of the mainstream narratives that are developing around this, you know, this seizure of power in the first of, um, on the 1st of Feb? What are, what are, basically, what are people um, saying about it? Is it being described as a, as a coup? And if so, what's, you know, are there any problems with, with doing that? In some senses, it's obviously a coup because the military has seized control. But uh, in some respects, it's not a coup because typically a coup involves um, the army or some other group overturning the existing constitutional order. Mm. So they intervene, they dissolve the existing government and they scrap the existing constitution. The interesting thing about this intervention by the military is they haven't done that. They've claimed to be acting under the constitution, which does allow them under certain circumstances to uh, seize control for a year, possibly up to two years uh, in the case of an emergency. Mm. And they're claiming to be up to be doing that. I don't think that's insignificant politically speaking, because it just reminds us that the constitution is their constitution. So this is the 2008, 2008 constitution. So it's not that they've scrapped it. Yeah. Uh, they're intervening from their perspective. It's not working exactly as it should. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's not enough discipline in discipline, flourishing democracy, I think (laughs) is the way to think about it. And what they want to do is reinforce the discipline element. There's a new, a new army in town, a discipline army. Well, they're very disciplined, but uh, from their perspective, the army's always viewed the civilian politicians in the country as being fundamentally unruly, undisciplined, unpatriotic, yeah. self-interested, yeah. Uh, chaotic, and so on. So what they want to do is, from their perspective, you know, clean up democracy and then have elections later on. But it seems like what they're doing in the process is taking out the NLD leadership. And who knows, they may eventually want to dissolve the NLD itself. But certainly it looks like they're trying to take out Aung San Suu Kyi and Win Mint, who was her ally, who was formerly the president. So... I guess one question that this this raises is what the what's been the military's pretext for doing this and why why has it happened now um, because there this isn't the first time that the uh, NLD has has won they an election they also did in December twenty fifteen mm. um, and so why why like why now what's the What's the reason for for acting in 2021 that wasn't there in, in 2015? Or what's the pretext, maybe, if there's not an actual objective reason for for the for this intervention at this I point? I think this is the, the key question that not enough people are asking because attention has very quickly moved on to you know the protests and the way that they've yeah. been treated afterwards, which is understandable. But if we're thinking about, you know, why how do we explain this event? We can't use the lazy explanations you get in the mainstream media on this that, uh, you know, they they couldn't stand it that their proxy party, the USDP, lost. Mm. Well, somehow they were willing to tolerate that in 2015, but not this time. Um, I think it's 
it's got more to do with, <clears throat> excuse me, it's got more to do with the deteriorating relationship between the military and the civilian government. That right. The civilian government was not showing enough deference to the military, um, in particular around these complaints around the election. It had, uh, it had annoyed the military around uh, the relocation of the of different parts of the civil service mm-hmm. away from military control to the civilian administration. Uh, it, it had annoyed the military over constitutional changes. It had annoyed the military over whether to hold elections in Rakhine State. Uh, the NLD uh, Election Commission blocked those mm-hmm. and the military wanted them to happen as part of their peace talks with one of the local insurgent groups. And then the government had responded very dismissively to the army's <clears throat> um, the army's concerns about electoral fraud. And I think what was at stake was the military's informal dominance of state and society was slowly being chipped away at. And what was on the line was the question of, of prestige. Mm-hmm. Um, at the bare minimum, it's the prestige of the military that it was being openly mocked in public and openly disregarded and that's not the disciplined part of the disciplined flourishing mm. democracy that's meant to happen. Then there are others that say the commander in chief wants to become president. Right. And uh, the, the, the Myanmar political system is such that the parliament elects the president. So you can have somebody who's non, you know, not directly elected as president. I'm not really sure this is the case. Uh, I don't know how they think they can engineer a parliamentary majority to, to elect him. They would have to, really seriously rigged the elections and they didn't interfere in the elections in 2015 or 2020, which is a bit strange if you want to ensure a particular Mm. electoral outcome. So I'm not so sure that's really the case. Um, But the coming year is a bit of a crunch year for Minang Lime because he is due to retire. Right. So, and he is the... He's the commander in chief. Okay. So So, Lee, I wondered, like, you obviously put emphasis all on domestic factors for... The, for the military's re-entry into direct rule. Um, is there any other kind of potential international kind of, not ramifications, but actual causes for them thinking, actually, we need to take back control directly? Um, I don't know, relations with China or some other kind of evolution in kind of the regional context, anything like that? Um, or is it just maybe the just those domestic factors that you mentioned? I, I also wanted to say that it seems like really old school authoritarianism for them to be concerned yeah. with prestige in that way, like to mock the, you know, mock authority in that way, um, which I guess most forms of dictatorship now are much more comfortable, I think, with uh, or less defensive, I guess, of their prestige in that way. They don't get too worked up if if people aren't respecting their authority. Are you got to follow up, Lee, if you want to add on to your response to Alex's, which is, um, it's a very simple question, which is just why are they not afraid of the international reaction? Mm. Or at least they don't seem to be. And is there a calculation there or they're taking a risk? Or if you could just maybe talk about their... Um, how they how the Burmese military see their international image and how far they're worried about it. Mm. I mean, I think broadly they don't give a damn. Um, of course, from 1988 to 2012, there were very severe Western sanctions, mounting Western sanctions against the military regime. And I don't think it made very much difference at all. Uh, if anything, it would have... Uh, prolonged the agony, I think, <clears throat> by making it harder for the military to impose its will. 
and emboldening the opposition when they actually weren't in a position to really offer serious resistance. So, um, you know, they've ridden out sanctions before. Hmm. And in fact, the military became stronger over time. The economy became stronger over time. Uh, the Burmese economy grew under Western sanctions. Exports grew sharply. And the, the military itself is a kind of state within the state. So it, it has two very large conglomerates which are entrenched in different parts of the Myanmar economy from mining through to you know, brewing and retail, communications, all kinds of stuff. And many senior military personnel have their own business interests. Um, and so there's a lot of off-budget funding for the military that they're not dependent on government revenue and spending, although actually in, in absolute terms, military spending has gone up under the transition. Um, so they, they have a sort of autonomous power base themselves, which allows them, which they've cultivated over many decades, that allows them to be resistant to mm. external pressure. And you know, they are willing to be very unpopular, to be hated uh, internationally, to face isolation in order to pursue their political goals. Mm. And they are old school. Um, you know, they, they do care about their authority. They do see themselves as the guardians of national sovereignty and integrity. They do think that uh, civilian politicians are just incapable. They are a very old-fashioned um, army, which is very insular, and their thinking and their political strategy has barely evolved since the 1970s. Mm. You know, mm. they, are, they are very, very old school. They're not part of this sort of more flexible... Um, forms of authoritarianism which are more participatory and mm. even more sort of liberal looking like Singapore like we discussed before that's yeah. it you know they're very different kettle mm. of fish in um, Myanmar much more backwards great great to see someone sticking it to postmodernism I guess that's, that's the, <laughs> I think, pulling, pulling one back for the for the modernists um, <laughs> so if I think that's a really useful overview I guess of the, um, the military's role and where 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 they're coming from I was going to say their their um their vibe, if you will, but in terms of the, their truth. I guess their truth. <laughs> um, oh, no, so, I, sorry, I didn't experience. ask the question about external influences. Yeah, what no, I didn't I mean, answer the question. Part, particularly, I think Alex raised the Chinese um, mm. influence. So I think that the. Oh, sorry. Just to say, actually, I mean, because what popped into my head was the mm. experience of Hong Kong, um, which maybe was fresh in their minds, especially as Myanmar is fairly interlinked with China. Is that any, in any way kind of influenced the uh, military's in the decision-making process? I don't think so. I think if there's any influence of Hong Kong, it's on the opposition to the coup because uh, there's this so-called milk tea alliance between the youth protesters in Hong Kong and also in Thailand and Myanmar. And they've used very similar sorts of tactics, very similar repertoires of protest um, online memes, uh, these kinds of things. Um, and so they are kind of connected online, which is mm. it's an interesting and novel phenomenon in, in the Myanmar context. But I don't think that there, there is a strong belief among some of the anti-coup protesters that China has a hand in the coup. Um, but this is more of a reflection of the deep-seated Sinophobia in Myanmar right. society than it is anything else, which is very widely entrenched because of the role that China has played in propping up the previous military regime. Okay. Um, but also there is widespread Sinophobia in the military itself. 
partly because of the role that China has in relations with some of the ethnic minority rebel groups in the Sino-Myanmar borderlands. Right. But most fundamentally, the Chinese did have a very close relationship with the old hunter, and they were major investors in the country and had many large-scale projects and so on. And so they really uh, disgruntled when the the post-military regime uh, put a big block on Chinese mega-projects, and it led to a massive freeze in relations, a collapsing investment. And so... Subsequent to 2015, the Chinese put in a lot of time and effort and money cultivating good ties with the NLD and civil society groups mm-hmm. in order to regain lost ground in Myanmar, and that was succeeding. So the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative was was starting to pick up again in Myanmar. So really, I think the last thing they wanted is to see the military return to power. Mm-hmm. And they've actually put out statements that make that very explicit, that to get, to get back on the right track, to quote mm-hmm. the Chinese ambassador, means getting back to democracy. Right. So on, on that question, yeah, sorry, on, Phil. yeah, just to ask, so would you think Lee then that the say youthful, youthful NLD voting protesters in the streets right now, do they want to, they want to be part of an American sphere of influence. They want um, McDonald's and all the rest of it. Um, there does the xenophobia <laughs> extend to that degree? Like that is, that is all American influences. It's McDonald's, you got your blue jeans, you got your pictures of James Dean, all that, all that shit. More old, that's old school. Maybe that's um, a different vision of America. But yeah, I mean, do they want? Do they want? Um, do they want? You know, do they look to America like um, culturally, politically? Yeah, I think I think they do to a certain extent, and some of them increasingly are educated abroad. Um, certainly, they're more uh, internationally aware, conscious, mobilized, and connected because. Um, you know, from round about 2012, Myanmar started, you, you could start to get smartphones and you could start to get connected to the internet in a way that previously was prohibitively expensive and it was controlled by the military, whether you could have a, um, internet access or not. Now, it, now everybody's online and everybody's on Facebook. So, um, so they are more internationally oriented. And one interesting and depressing aspect is that some of the protests are directed at the so-called international community with calls to hashtag save Myanmar. And there is, mm. there is, there's always been a belief or a desire on the part of parts of the pro-democracy opposition for, for Western military intervention in Myanmar to save them from the military dictatorship, which mm. is simply a sign of their own weakness and despair because they can't see how they can get rid of the military themselves save themselves yeah so i guess touched on this a bit already but in terms of the the forces and um, protesting the coup how do you understand them is it is it too simple to say is the younger more international um you know the i don't want to say the, the liberals but the you know we, we all know the types you know young people <laughs> with, with 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 smartphones and they're on you know, that internet, checking that Twitter and, you know, politically engaged in that way, um, more sort of affluent potentially. Is that an oversimplification? Yes. Could you uh, expand on that answer? <laughs> Elaborate. By telling me how my extremely crude characterization is... Um, so I, is think, I think you could say that the, the, the anti-Q opposition has about four, four main elements. Uh, one Could is, you describe these in marketing terms? That would be very useful. 
as like um, I cannot. panic professionals, for example. I mean, that that was brilliant. I really young... enjoyed that element of the Scotland yeah. episode. We, we, we should ask people to do that more. Um, yeah. I also liked the way that... She, um, I forget, I forget your guest. Sorry? Cat. Cat. I also like the way that she prefaced that by saying, I'm not an academic, uh, and then proceeded to explain the situation much better than any academic actually could. So, so you're an academic. I'm an academic, so I'm you... going to explain it in a very boring and dry way, I'm afraid. I don't yeah. have marketing categories. Okay. Um, so the first group is the committee representing the people's Hluto. The Hluto is the parliament. So this is the elected MPs. Um, that were elected last November, and they claim to be the rightful authority in the country. And they have appointed some ministers and they've appointed a UN ambassador. This is a rather elite group, although some of some NLD MPs have been former activists and, and political prisoners. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm right in saying that they're all NLD. Okay. Um, so they're kind of peeved parliamentarians. They are parliamentarians that are now... Uh, they've been declared outlaws, which would ban them from politics in the future. Right. Um, but they probably what we will see at some point is that the United Nations a struggle over recognition, whether the United Nations is going to accept the military government's representative or the the NLD, this, this committee's uh, representative. Then you've got the civil disobedience movement, which is the one that's the most most commonly written about and, and pictured. And it is that this is where so-called Generation Z uh, is the most is the most prominent. It, young people on the streets, um, they've grown up in the era of the reform era, the post-military era, and they're furious that um, things are going backwards. Mm. And they're incredibly brave, um, you know, they, they have... They have maintained mass mobilization on the streets despite mm-hmm. over 200 protesters being killed so far, many more maimed, and thousands being dragged off to, to prison. The civil disobedience movement started as um, a civil disobedience campaign amongst doctors and then civil servants. Mm-hmm. And that's so it's it's not just the street protest, it's also a wider civil disobedience campaign, which very interestingly, has started to affect the state bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. And we've never seen this before, um, not, not for decades. The involvement of, of bureaucrats in opposition politics, that is quite striking. Even mm-hmm. in Napidor, which is this bizarre um, capital in the middle of the jungle mm-hmm. uh, created by the previous military regime, even in Napidor, uh, civil servants have been out protesting. Um, then the third group, which you don't hear you hear almost nothing about is the confederation of trade unions of myanmar so the labor movement um which has led a campaign for a general strike and it's basically paralyzing the economy so uh uh, this is inflicting more damage on the regime than simple uh, youth-led street Mm -hmm. protests could possibly do so it has seized up the banking system it is, it is uh, seizing up cargo shipments at the ports and uh, is seizing up railway transportation. This is, a, this, is a, this is doing more damage to the economy than Western sanctions could ever hope to do. So and then how, the final, sorry, sorry, just to ask quickly, just for um, some clarification, how hmm. strong is the organized industrial working class in Burma? I mean, Burma is pretty rural still. So um, how significant is it in the economy? It is, as you say, a primarily agrarian economy 
um, uh, the the majority of people still uh, rely on agriculture, subsistence agriculture. Um, at the and in terms of industrial development, it is quite limited, and has mainly been around garments, export oriented garments sector. Right. But there are there are and also union organising has been mm. crimped by. Uh, well, first of all, trade unions were outlawed under the military regime. They were only legalised, I think, in 2012. Um, and they remain fragmented, so you can only have enterprise-level unions. But they have ah, tried to right. stitch these things together. So it is not immensely powerful, but it is organised enough and unified enough at the moment to uh, be having a serious impact on the basic functioning of the economy. So the, the, the three groups, the, the peeved parliamentarians, the strident students, you can just ignore all of these. And the Bolshevik workers. And the, the United Unionists. And um, finally, the... Um, what's the fourth group? Uh, the ethnic minority rebel groups. Right. So... Rebel Alliance. The Rebel Alliance. Well, the thing is that they're not really an alliance. You should feel free to, to push back against the stupid names. That's the point of the Rebel People Alliance. Like, it's never a real alliance. That's the point of the Rebel yeah, Alliance. They are very fragmented because obviously it's ethnic-based resistance and sometimes the, uh, the uh, and a particular ethnic group will have various different rebel groups all claiming to represent it. Um, but a lot of the ethnic minority groups that were either in a ceasefire with the, with the NLD government or have been in a sort of... Uh, a kind of tenuous relationship with the state they've come out against the they've come out against the the regime as well so it is quite broad based this uh, opposition to the coup even if they don't fit nicely into marketing categories so how do you see this um playing out then you have these these four groups um as you describe them academically accurately on the one hand and on the other hand you have the military what what are the um how do you do you see this ending well or not so much no not really it's it's really hard to see how it ends well because the Myanmar military as i've said is old school it is brutal mm-hmm. um it's thuggish it has rotated some of the most notorious units that it uses in the borderlands to brutalize ethnic minority populations it's rotated them mm-hmm. into the cities to unleash against um, the street protesters. It does not seem interested in negotiating a solution to the crisis. It's mostly just interested in imposing its will. It sees resistance as something to be crushed rather than dealt with in any other way. And as I say, it has an independent power base. Uh, it's not interested in its international reputation. Mm-hmm. So the likelihood is that it will eventually use overwhelming force to try to crush the protests. The opposition is very determined mm-hmm. and it's more broadly based and more internationally networked uh, than before. Uh, it is starting to uh, radicalise in its demands, not right. just saying uh, we want to go back to the status quo ante, but also demands to abolish the 2008 constitution mm-hmm. and call for you know, reckoning for the military, really. Um, Do you think it has the, the support across society to... To achieve that, because that seems like a pretty a pretty radical demand. I mean, it depends what I was reckoning say, means. What the, what the chance of civil war is, um, and also yeah. I suppose I mean, you know, the to put it in context. So the bear, you know, the Belarusian um, 
autocrat Lukashenko has um, stayed in harness. Um, the Syrian regime has survived 10 years of civil war now. Um, the Turkish regime, um, Erdogan kind of consolidated his rule after an attempted um, coup um, way back in 2016. So it's all, I mean, it seems like the kind of that wave of um, liberalization and democratization is over. And presumably that the Burmese, that the Burmese military could probably face down the protesters and weather the international um, storm if it chose to. Yeah, and I think that's its that's its game plan. Um, so does that lead to civil war then, given the radicalization of the protests, you say? Well, I, I think it's important to say that Myanmar has never not been at civil war. So the, Myanmar does have the world's longest running ethnic conflicts. And, the, you know, because of the ethnic minority insurgencies against the state, which which started from even before the, the moment of uh, decolonization, um, the and one might well argue, looking at the the scenes of the cities, which look like war zones, mm. that there is already a civil war that the military is waging a war against its own society. Um, the the thing that is interesting this time round, which I don't think we've seen for a long, long time, is some splits in the security apparatus. So this has been most prominent among the the police. Mm-hmm. Some police. Uh, you know, quitting, crossing over to the other side. Uh, that has happened with a few military units as well. Um, it is small scale. Uh, and the, I think the most senior defection has been a police major, which is not very, you know, not very high. Mm. Um, but this is quite rare. So if you think back to the last time there were big mass protests in Myanmar, which was 2000. 2007, the so-called Saffron Revolution, when there were monk-led protests, eventually the military was prepared to to kill monks to restore what it mm. saw as order, and that's that's pretty horrific uh, for a predominantly Buddhist society to be shooting on unarmed clergymen. Um, but that showed you what the military is capable of, and the military didn't split then. Mm. Um, so there is the tantalizing prospect that there could be rifts within the military. And it is worth pointing out that if you look at the voting records, uh, areas with large military encampments um, vote NLD. Mm -hmm. So even some in the military are voting for the NLD. They don't believe that the military should rule. Right. And that's Mm -hmm. partly because, you know, the generational changes that have happened in Myanmar, they've also happened in the military. Mm-hmm. In the military no longer exposed exclusively to military propaganda. They can now, you know, see for themselves what's going on in the outside world and, and so on. Now that the, the key thing in all the cases that you mentioned, Phil, is that the military stayed coherent and it stayed loyal to the regime and, and in so mostly coherent and loyal to the regime. And so it, these regimes were able to use coercion to stay in power. Mm-hmm. A, a split in the military is the one thing that could perhaps force a pacted transition uh, that could potentially uh, lead to a, a diminished role for, for the, the army in Myanmar's governance going forwards. But it could also lead to an absolute determination on the part of the, mm-hmm. the central command to hold on to power and crush mutiny, leading to yeah. outright civil war. And given the mindset that, prevails in the military the latter seems more likely so 
I'm afraid that it's very hard to see how the opposition can win and the future just looks incredibly grim. Well, thanks for taking us through that lead. Not a perhaps particularly uh, positive situation, but one that does sound pretty finely uh, balanced. So to move to another not particularly <laughs> positive situation, we're recording this on the uh, year anniversary of the three of three week lockdown to flatten the curve. Um, and it seems like in the British context, at least we haven't even after a year uh, come to an, a, a commonly accepted way to pronounce COVID or COVID. Uh, both are acceptable. Is people saying opinion. COVID? People saying yeah. COVID. Yeah. No one says COVID, George. You've just made that shit up right now. No one says COVID. (laughs) Everyone says says COVID. COVID. No one one says COVID. Everyone says COVID. It's like fucking Nigella Lawson saying Kurawave. No one fucking says it. (laughs) What kind of no says COVID? (laughs) Exactly. Um, I know some, and and I'm not going to name them, but uh, I I support them. They have my solidarity. They can name it however they like. Um, but yeah, so this is another thing that you've you've written on quite a lot, um, Lee, is I think the probably the best way to put it is this, the, the role of the state in the response to, uh, to coronavirus. And one thing in particular, and we'll link to some of the readings in the show notes, um, is this argument that I, I was going to say, I won't say what I think about it, but I think it's both completely correct and extremely important. Um, so I will say what I think about it um, and flatter, flatter the guests as well. Um, you can't have time. Um, yeah, this is the introduction that should have should have been at the top <laughs> uh, of the programme. Um, so, yeah, your argument that that this is exposed, not caused, but exposed um, the failed neoliberal regulatory state across the world. So could you uh, tell us more about this, this argument? Yeah, so this is a this is a paper that I wrote with my uh, long-time collaborator Shahar Hamiri. Um, you mean your academic boyfriend? Academic husband. <laughs> um, yes, we've written a lot about state transformation, the way in which states are changing um, across the world under globalization, the impact that that has on international relations and domestic politics. And so what we look at in this paper is the rise of the regulatory state um in the west and we attribute the western states appalling performance during the covid pandemic to the rise of this regulatory state Mm. because the starting the starting puzzle if you like is that these states were supposed to be the ones that were best prepared to deal with the pandemic yep if you look at before the pandemic the world economic forum uh bmj uh global preparedness index you know, Britain was ranked top alongside the United States as being the ones that were best prepared to deal with the pandemic. There was there were war games. <laughs> there were war games, but the war games exposed all the problems. With that. So, so, that, so there, those reports were hushed up. But the sort of mindless, bureaucratic, box-ticking, bean-counting that passes for assessments of governance today ranked these states the best and they performed the worst. And so the question is, why is that? Mm. And we put it down to the emergence of, of, of the regulatory state, which essentially hollowed out the capacities of the state to meaningfully plan 
for events like this and to provide basic goods and services and and keep uh, keep their populations safe. So they fail right. at the most rudimentary elements of statecraft. So there's quite a few questions that come off this. Um, one is, which I think we can get onto how this how this situation developed, what the origins of the regulatory state. But what are some of the, I guess, some of the key terms in this way to look at the state? You, mm. you talk in, there's a Telegraph article, a little bit about outsourcing, decreasing public expectations, state capacity. What, what do you see as the key kind of, uh concepts or terms that you would sort of that you would put forward as a way that people can frame this the, the state in this in mm. this way as a failed regulatory one so i think the best way to understand it is historically um that broadly speaking in the in the period from the 1940s to the 1970s you had what you might call a command and control state mm-hmm. where the the planning apparatuses developed during wartime, which totally mobilized society's resources to fight the war, were repurposed for peacetime. So you had the construction of welfare states, you had national economic planning, you had nationalization, um, and you had a state that therefore was imbued with its own capacities and had quite clear lines of command and control, quite clear lines of authority and accountability um, centered on the elected government. And then with the crisis of capitalism in the 1970s, which coincided with a crisis of what was called at the time, a crisis of rising expectations, you basically had a sustained period of growth uh, from the 40s to the 70s in which workers got a, a rising share of the social wage. They had more welfare. They had more income. 30 glorious years. Yes, the the, the trente glorious. Yes, exactly. So the... In that period, people became habituated to getting more year on year, that the state would provide them with more and they would get higher income. Yeah. And as you know, there was a big profitability squeeze in the 1970s amid the oil crises, uh, the collapse of the Breton Woods system, the gold standard and so on. And capitalism couldn't deliver that anymore. And so the what had to happen was that the, the crisis of rising expectations had to be diffused by, by crushing these demands from below, particularly crushing organized labor, yeah. and also retooling the state so that it ceased to be so um, responsive to these demands. So first of all, you try to reduce the demands. Secondly, you try to insulate the state from these demands. So this is, this is quite explicit in some of the, the policy discussions in the, in the 1970s. So what you then get is a retooling of the state apparatus. So privatization um, means that democratic control over parts of the economy, such that it was, is eliminated. Um, You see a shift away from political control towards markets. You see a shift of decision-making away from elected representatives to non-majoritarian institutions such as independent regulators, quangos, courts, independent central banks, and so on. And what you see is that the central government retreats from its role in planning uh, and uh, trying to pursue directly certain political goals to being a regulatory state, that it merely sits there uh, setting out broad guidelines, broad regulations to steer uh, various public and private actors in broadly 
favorable directions oriented around maximizing global economic competitiveness. So that's the shift yeah. from command and control state to a regulatory state. So you have the 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 flattening of expectations at the same time that the state looks to insulate itself from from uh, any democratic pressures. I think that's a nice way, a nice pincer movement. Um, so, okay, if, if that's some of the background, like what's the, what are some of the striking examples of like, of how this regulatory state proved itself to be unable to respond to, to COVID? So fundamentally, the way that the regulatory state operates is by, as I, as I mentioned, setting out very broad guidelines and frameworks that then it's left for other entities within society to then translate into slightly more concrete guidelines and regulations that then might further guide and regulate somebody else. And often it's regulation all the way down. Uh, That was how it was described to me when I was active in setting up a local mutual aid group during the pandemic, that talking to uh, local voluntary agencies, they were encountering local councils and saying, all these people want to do is regulate others. So what was missing was people was actually having the capacity to do stuff. Yeah. So the state, the state, the British state has been preparing for a pandemic since 1997. This was not unexpected. The state was not unprepared on paper. This is why yeah. it was able to look so good in these international benchmarking exercises. But probably what filled prep- in some very good forms. Say again. Probably filled in some forms very well. They did. They gave some some good succinct, good PowerPoint um, presentations. I'm sure some, were made. Some long, great, strategy, some great slides. Some... Long strategy documents. Yeah. Lots of lots of bureaucratic paperwork. Lots of things that look very good on paper, but not backed by any real investment in state capacity. Uh, nothing really there. When push comes to shove, there's nobody there to actually do the things that are necessary. There isn't the capacity in the laboratories. There isn't the capacity there in the hospitals. Yeah. There isn't a test and trace service. So what, what ended up being the health implications of this? Just, I mean, it's just to, to, to draw this out. Um, like how did, how did this, what did this failure look like? I mean, obviously one, one part of it that we've all experienced or been experiencing in various ways across the world is the, it's a kind of negative one thing that has shown itself to be able to do is to demobilize people so mm. to tell people to do nothing um but what yeah what has this what have the health implications been of this um this particular kind of form of of the state and the way that it's been the way that it was balanced um at, at when the pandemic hit well, i was going to say this time last year but it feels like 10 years ago <laughs> yeah it certainly feels like longer than a year um the the implications were that the state was not configured to protect the health of its population. And I think two, um, there are two examples that stand out. I mean, there are many things that we, we talk about in the paper, but one of them is that is the complete absence of a robust public health monitoring system for infection control. So, and this was because of decades of hollowing out of public health laboratories and concrete capacities for for public health control such that the for public health england the infection control budget for 2020 was less than 87 million pounds um and so when it came when the pandemic hit on the 12th of march 2020 Mm. we now know that testing was secretly abandoned because the system could only handle five tests per week 
five tests five tests per week per week um and i always remember that particular date because that was the date in which my other half came home from work with covid um and did everything right you know called 111 and so on and they were, mm-hmm. they were basically saying uh uh you know have you been to china no are you are you over 80 no oh you'd be fine <laughs> <laughs> and that's the moment i knew without knowing very much of the detail that we were not going to be able to contain yeah. this as the government was then claiming and then the other big failure was in procurement supply and what had happened here was uh, using the management consultancy Deloitte, the NHS had spun out the procurement and logistics arm of the National Health Service and privatised it under 11 different contracts to various middlemen, uh, mostly logistics companies rather than actual manufacturers. Yeah. Um, and even the pandemic PPE stockpile had been privatised. Um, and it transpired later that the value of the stockpile had fallen by 40% from 2013 to 18. There was only two weeks of supply on hand uh, by January 2020. Jesus. The warehouses were understocked by 10 to 28%, depending on the items. Yeah. And you had, you know, just inconsequential things like masks, gowns, ventilators were missing. Um, something like... Uh, 45% of the stock was expired, was past its use-by date. Right. Um, and all of the contractors that were part of this outsourced, fragmented system failed to deliver on their contracts because yeah. they were using just-in-time delivery systems that <laughs> you know, collapsed in the context of surging global demand. And so the government had to improvise from scratch a new procurement system just to get hold of basic uh, personal protective equipment. Yeah leading to massively shambolic outsourcing, cronyism, yep. and an enormous waste of public funds. Yeah, uh, It is one of the worst you know, disasters in, in the management of the state, I think, in, in peacetime. And then the, the paradoxical situation of having people uh, not working or, or, mm. or furloughed at the same time that there was a, you know, a massive objective social problem in terms of producing what we needed and technical mm. material capacities to solve problems. Um, mm. And that, that was, a, I think, a striking paradox, which has in some ways continued um, today. All right. Thank you, Lee. Well, that's it for this uh, episode, at least publicly. Uh, we are going to be continuing on this discussion over on a Patreon episode, which will be coming out one week after this. It's at patreon.com slash bungacast. If you want to hear that, we're going to be continuing this discussion about COVID and especially making some international comparisons, looking at countries that might actually have managed the pandemic a little bit better, um, who might not have such a decrepit regulatory state. Um, so that's it for, for now from us. Uh, thank you very much, Lee. And uh, we're going to continue talking because this is all a bit artificial. But you, you can say bye if you wish, Lee. Yeah, I will say goodbye. Uh, but obviously, everybody should subscribe to the Patreon so they can hear the next part of the, of the show. I didn't even tell him to say that. No, exactly. What a pro. Yeah. <laughs>